0: chapter number four. As I was thinking this morning concerning the subject of the rapture and realizing that for some people it might be new information. You know, those of us that have been saved for many years, sometimes I think maybe we forget at what stage of spiritual development or knowledge that some people are at. And you know as a as a preacher you you want to strive to make things as clear as possible and regardless of how hard you try there's always the possibility that there's going to be a miscommunication and uh, sometimes we preachers don't make ourselves clear and sometimes people just don't really listen like they should and consequently, they don't understand. That kind of reminds me of a story I read the other day about the, uh, the teacher was lecturing on the population uh, problem in, in India and was talking about, said, uh, every, every ten seconds a woman gives birth to a baby. And uh, one uh, kid stood up and said, we need to find that woman and stop her. And so... <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes people just don't get it, but um, <laughs> it pays to pay attention. It can really, it can really work in your in in your favor. Like the university graduate, you know, was filling out a job application and come to the part down at the bottom. It said salary expected, and he sat there and scratched his head for a while, and then put. Yes. <laughs> oh, so for some, you know, they even go to college and they just don't get it. Um, I hope you'll get it. Revelation chapter number four. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. In this first verse, I believe that we see a foreview of the rapture. A foreview of the rapture. There are three things about this that I find interesting. The first part has to do with the time element. John's vision thus far had been limited to uh, the ministry of churches on earth. We've just talked about the seven churches in Asia, and so everything has centered uh, on the churches, churches literally here upon this earth. But after this... The church is never mentioned again as being here on the earth. The only reference would have to do with the bride of Christ and what the church is later on, but it's never pictured again being on earth. And so in the remainder of this book, everything deals with future events. In other words, things that occur after the rapture. And and so uh, that's why I say the time element itself makes us think that here we have a fuller view of the rapture. But also, not just the time, notice the mention of the trumpet here. And this change of scene is announced, John says, by a voice that's like a trumpet. And of course, that is significant because uh, on several occasions... Uh, a trumpet is mentioned in regards to the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16, we read that this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22, John chapter 5 verse 25. And so on several occasions it speaks about the sound of a trumpet when the Lord comes. And so again, I think this is a foreview of The rapture, because of the time, because of the trumpet. But then, notice, there is a reference to transportation, as it were. He says, come up hither. And again, that reminds us of what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, where he said we are going to be what? Caught up. Caught up. And here it says, come up hither. Caught up. That's what the rapture is. A catching up. And we talked about that this morning. That the Lord is going to come again. It, it just amazes me how few references we hear to the Lord's coming in churches today. I, I mean, it's almost unheard of that anyone get up and preach a sermon about the Lord's coming back. You need to get ready. Uh, you listen to the television preachers or the radio preachers, and uh, again, it's almost, uh, it's almost unheard of. And, and yet Paul says, this is our blessed hope. I mean, this is the most wonderful thing that we can imagine, and we're totally ignoring it. It just doesn't make sense. Now, verse 2 and 3, "...now our attention is turned to the figure on the throne." He moves from the foreview of the rapture to the figure on the throne. And immediately, immediately, notice that's important, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto... An emerald. Now, this announcement, notice when it was made, it says, And immediately John is transported from earth to heaven. Remember this morning I said Paul mentioned in First Corinthians chapter 15, In the twinkling of an eye, I mean that's what i would call immediate and again we see the picture of the rapture taking place he's caught up john leaves earth john is pictured here as being in heaven and notice he sees a a figure on the throne and notice this figure is not described by by name uh, or by shape or by form he's just mentioned as being like jasper and the sardine stone in coloration. Here's the interesting thing about that. You go back to the old testament and you see that the 12 tribes of Chis- uh, of Israel were represented each tribe by a particular stone. And of course the high priest had these stones on his on, on his garment and each one representing one of the tribes. The jasper represented Reuben, that was the first tribe. And the sardine stone represented Benjamin, that was the last. You have the first and you have the last. Well, you've heard that before, amen? He is the first and the last. And then he says, around, around the throne there's a rainbow. Typical of God's mercy. A rainbow, notice with an emerald hue. This is speaking about God's everlasting covenant of mercy with Noah. And so, there's no doubt about who is sitting on that throne. It's interesting, he says that there, there was, there was one that sat on the throne. One that sat on the throne. There's only room for one, and that's God Himself. He is on the throne. And then verse 4, our attention moves from the throne to four and twenty elders. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white remnant, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, again, the identity of these elders is not... Reveal. He doesn't give us any names or any such thing. But again, we know that uh, whenever we think back to the children of Israel, for example, that there were the the, the, the twelve uh, uh, patriarchs uh, there in the Old Testament, and we come to the New Testament, and we have the number of the twelve apostles. And so you put those two together, and you come up with the number of twenty-four. Now, I'd be lying if I stood here and I told you I know exactly what everything means in the Bible, because I don't. And I certainly don't know what everything represents. When we come to the book of Revelation, there are some mysteries that God doesn't even try to reveal. And John doesn't try to, you know, to reveal. He just, he just tells us what he saw. He doesn't try to interpret it. But it's interesting, and some have suggested that that although Israel had thousands of priests, all of those priests were divided up into 24 different groups. In other words, there were 24 separate orders of priests. So whether there was a thousand priests or 1,500 priests, all of them were divided up into 24 separate orders. Those 24, when assembled, represented the entire priesthood. So I see in this a picture of these elders representing all believers, just as, just as all of the priests were represented by the assembly of those 24 heads of each order. Even so, when we picture these 24 elders, it's like John saying, you know, I see a picture of all of God's people assembled around the throne. I, I think that's what the what he's getting at. I think that's what's being represented here. And, and then notice he says they're clothed in white. Look, look at chapter number 19 for just a minute, and, and it's easy to figure this out because in verse number 8 of chapter number 19, It says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So we don't have to guess at what this means, or we don't have to guess at who these people are, or anything like that. They're clothed in white, and that represents the righteousness of the saints. But then notice, he mentions the crowns of gold. There are two different kinds of crowns mentioned in the Bible. The one Stephanus, I believe, is the way you pronounce that particular Greek word, and uh, and 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 it speaks about authority or power. And then there is the victor's crown. One is a diadem, one is the ruler's crown, and the other is the victor's crown, such as was given to people in the Greek games. And that's what's being pictured here when he says there were crowns of gold. We're talking about something that 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 is won or something that is earned or something that is awarded. Now, remember, after the Lord returns in the clouds of the air and we're caught up, we're raptured to go be with the Lord, understand this. And this is one of those areas you need to really listen lest you go away confused. All believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is not the judgment of the unsaved. The judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with our salvation. It has to do with our service. You see, the unsaved appear at the great white throne judgment. That's where they receive their final condemnation. But in Romans chapter number 14 and verse number 10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Speaking about Christians, we, Paul speaking and representing Christians, and again and again, we find reference to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, for example, he speaks about this very thing, that we're all going to give an account for the life that we live here on this earth. And that determines our rewards. It might help to think about it like this. As, As sinners, we have already been judged. I'm talking about people that are saved now. And as sinners, we've already been judged, and that's why Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse number 24, He says there that there is now therefore no condemnation. You've already been judged. You've been judged in Jesus on the cross. There is now no indictment against you. There is no condemnation. You've already been judged. We'll never ever have to stand before God to be judged as to whether or not we're going to get into heaven. That'll never happen because that's already taken place the moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. So as sinners, we've already been judged. That's over. As sons, we are being judged. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I mean according to Hebrews chapter 12, when the Lord loveth he chasteneth and scourgeth every son that he receives. If you're a child of God, you are presently being judged. In other words, that whenever we sin against God, when we refuse to repent of our sins, and God warns us and what have you, and finally it reaches the place that God has no alternative. Having our best interest at heart, He chastises His children. In fact, the Bible says, if you be without chastisement, you are bastards and not... In other words, you're illegitimate. You're not truly a child of God. If you can live out of the will of God and be at peace with yourself and not be chastised by God, that is proof that you've never been saved. That ought to be a scary thought to some people, because I know some folks have been living out of God's will for 20 years, and they still think they're saved. And it's a scary thought when you get right down to it. We are presently being judged as the sons of God. We have already been judged as sinners, but when it comes to us as servants, we are going to be judged. That is something that is in the future, and that's what's pictured at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let me mention the the crowns that we win as a result of our service here on this earth. In fact, the Bible mentions five different crowns. I want to be brief because I don't want to get away from, from our, our study here in Revelation, but I just want to mention these, and you need to think about them, because these are five ways that we can receive Rewards for the Lord. First of all, there's the crown of glory. That's verse Peter five and verse number four. That's for faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful to know that regardless of who you are, you can receive a crown of glory. How? By being faithful? And we can all be faithful. We can't all sing like an angel. We can't all give tons of money. We don't all have an exceeding great amount of ability and so forth. But everybody can be faithful. There's never any excuse for us not being faithful to God. And it pays. There is a crown of glory awaiting those who are faithful. Then we find a second crown... And that's the crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 19. This is what we would call for soul winners those that win others to the Lord Jesus Christ, those that turn others to righteousness. As a result of that, we receive a crown of rejoicing. And Paul said to those people, you are my crown of rejoicing. These are people that he had ministered to, people that he had led to the Lord. He said, you are my crown of rejoicing. And it's wonderful to know that when we stand before the Lord, if we've won others to the Lord, there will be a crown of rejoicing in. that day, as well as a crown of glory. Thirdly, there will be an incorruptible crown, 1 Corinthians 9, verse number 25, an incorruptible crown, and that crown is won as a result of temperance. And that word temperance, of course, means self-control. It means having ourselves well in hand, temperance. And if you'll remember, that is the ninth grace mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit, In other words, it's an evidence that the Holy Spirit is controlling our life. And as a result of us being temperate in all things, the Bible tells us there is an incorruptible crown. Now something that is incorruptible means it's never going to rust, it's never going to rot, it means it's going to last forever. It's incorruptible. And I'll tell you, that's the kind of crown that I'm interested in. I remember several years ago and for a long time, every time that we would move, I made, had to make sure that I, you know, I got my baseball trophies, my softball trophies, and a few bowling trophies. I don't know how I got them, but I ended up with a few bowling trophies. And so every time we'd move, I'd move all of those trophies and find a place and set them up. Well, after a move or two, we would move and I would leave them boxed up. I... I well, somewhere along the way, I ceased to have any interest in those things, and we just left them somewhere. Why? Because they don't, they don't mean anything to me anymore. I mean, a few of them had been broken, and some of them had tarnished, and they meant nothing to me anymore. But when we think about the crowns that we win as a result of serving the Lord, I'll tell you, this is an incorruptible crown. Then, in James chapter 1 and verse number 12, it speaks about a crown of life. And this, this crown of life is for martyrs. For martyrs, those that literally lay their life on the line, there is a crown of life you know i can't help but think about john the baptist and a lot of folks think well you know it'd been wonderful if he hadn't died prematurely well, let me tell you something he didn't die prematurely he died right on time exactly when he was supposed to and you better believe that god did not in any way shortchange him by not allowing him to to live out his 3 score and 10 God knows what He's doing, and there is a crown of life for those that are willing to lay down their life. And then in Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 8, there is the mention of a crown of righteousness. And would you believe it, this crown has to do with those that are expecting the Lord's return. That's exactly what we've been talking about this morning and again tonight, talking about the Lord coming back and looking for the Lord to return. And most people are not looking for Him to return. In fact, most people don't even believe that He really is. They believe this is some kind of wild-eyed fundamentalist doctrine, you know, and the far-right uh, uh, Christians, radical, fanatical, and... That's exactly what a lot of people think. But I'm telling you, it is just as true as anything else in the Bible. Jesus is coming again, and it's going to happen when we least expect it, like a thief in the night, and suddenly the trumpet's going to sound, and just as you saw this morning, just that quick, in the twinkling of an eye, God's people are going to be taken out of this world. There is a special crown... Awaiting those that are waiting for the Lord. Those that are really looking for His coming. God has a special reward just for you. Now here's what we need to remember as we think about these five crowns. We need to think about the fact that our works will abide and we will be rewarded only. Only if, listen carefully, Only if, number one, it's a labor of love. If what we do for the Lord is not a labor of love, we are not going to be rewarded for it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. You see that it must be a labor of love. It cannot just be out of a sense of duty. And how many times do we do what, well, we know we're supposed to do, but we just do it because, well, it'd be embarrassing if I quit attending church. Brother Stone or Brother Preston probably be on my door, and I don't want to deal with that. I, you know, make mom and dad angry. And so you do the right thing, but you don't do it out of a sense of love. No reward. It must be a labor of love. Secondly, it must be done to exalt Christ. Matthew 6 and verse 2. It must be done to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're doing it in order to attract attention to yourself. By the way, you might be amazed at how much stuff goes on in churches for the sole purpose of drawing attention to oneself. It it happens, it, it happens, I guess, just about everywhere. Because why? Well, we're still dealing with the flesh, you see. And I've known people and you've known people that, that, for them, that's what it was all about. Making a name for themselves. And there are pastors that just live for the day that, you know, that they can get their church in the top ten largest churches in America. Boy, I quit worrying about that a long, long time ago. And I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to, I'm glad I don't have to measure up to that standard in order to receive a reward for my work in the Lord. All I have to do is, number one, make sure it's a labor of love. And number two, make sure I do it for the sole purpose of exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I must do it willfully, not by compulsion. Somebody can take a 12-gauge shotgun and put it to the nap of your neck and, you know, force you to attend church. But there's no reward in that. You have to do it willingly. Number four... It must be done faithfully. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, brethren, it's required in search that a man be found, what? Faithful. faithful. We've got to be faithful in what we do. You see, it's not just what you do occasionally. You see, I guess we could say every church member occasionally does something really, really good. But we're going to be rewarded for what we do Faithfully. And so it's important, as we think about those five crowns, and we ought to be concerned about that, that we make sure that it is a labor of love done to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we do it willingly and faithfully for the purpose of exalting Him. Now look at verse number 5. And he says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Here's another one of those verses that might be just a little bit confusing. The fire part is not so confusing because we can you know, we can go back to what the Bible teaches in several different places about fire, speaking of the judicial character of God. In other words, it's a sign of, of judgment. But there we see he talks about the seven spirits of God. Well, the number seven, of course, means completeness or, or perfection. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a person who is invisible. You can't reach out and touch Him. And we're talking, by the way, we're talking about just one Holy Spirit, but He talks about seven spirits. In the book of Isaiah, and we'll not turn there, but in the book of Isaiah, especially in chapter 4 and again in chapter number 11, in chapter 11 verse 2, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there is a mention of six different characteristics speaks about the Spirit of God being the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of knowledge, and so forth. If I remember right, I believe there are six different things mentioned there. Well, here there are seven things mentioned. Seven spirits. And, and the only thing I can figure out is that this is speaking about the sevenfold character, in other words, the perfect actions, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. Remember, God doesn't make any mistakes. He doth all things well, and so knowing knowing that, He says here that these speaks of these seven spirits of God. Now, whether that is the right explanation or not, all I can tell you is that's the only way I can understand that. But. It doesn't shake my confidence in God's Word one little bit because I don't have a total understanding of what some particular verse means. And I don't think you ought to let that worry you. We get too worried about things that we don't understand. We've got enough to worry about if we'll think about the things that we do understand. And here he speaks about the seven spirits, and and he talks about the lightning and the thunder and the voices Kind of a eerie, scary thing as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we're dealing with deity here, folks. And and I don't think we all uh, will have the attitude that sometimes we think we will when we stand before the Lord you know, and preaching, I've got excited and said, I'm going to kick my shoes off and dance down Hallelujah Avenue, kicking up gold dust under my feet, and I'm going to shout and I'm going to sing. And and, and really, whenever whenever I get back to reality, I think I'll probably just fall on my face with tears in my eyes at the feet of my dear Savior. Uh, that's, that's the only only appropriate thing that I can think of and. Put yourself in John's place. He's been caught up, as it were, from earth to heaven. He's seen all of this. We just sing about it. He's seen it. Verse number 6. Now, beginning in verse 6 down through verse 9, our attention is turned from the fire before the throne to four beasts. And he says, And before the throne there, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Well, I told you, I don't understand it all, but that's the picture. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second was was like a calf, and the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts, each of them, had six wings about him, And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat upon the throne, who liveth forever and ever... Stop there. Notice their appearance. He says they're beasts. And that literally means living ones. It might not mean what you picture as some horrible, awful, terrible, dangerous animal of some kind. It simply means living ones. Now, here's the interesting thing. I mentioned Israel earlier, and I mentioned, you know, the the two different stones—one representing, you know, uh, Reuben and one Benjamin, the first and the last—and and and so whenever we look at these four animals, again, each tribe was represented by an animal. And here we see the mention of the lion—that was Judah's tribe—that represented Judah's tribe. Then there's the calf—that was Ephraim's tribe. Then there's man, that was Ruby, Reuben's tribe. And then there's the eagle, that was Dan's tribe. Now let's think through these for just a minute and you're, you'll see something I believe will be a blessing to your heart. First of all, he said the first beast was like a lion. Judah's tribe, This this speaks about power and majesty. Do you remember that the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as what? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is a king. He's a king. And that was the message proclaimed to the Jews, that the kingdom of God is come. The king is here. Whenever we get to the book of Mark, and here in the Book of Mark, we see Jesus pictured as a servant. The calf represented Ephraim's tribe. It speaks about labor. It speaks about humility. It speaks about patience. And Jesus is presented here as in, in, in the in the Book of Mark as the servant of man. We come to the Gospel of Luke, and here we see man was the third beast. Representing Reuben's tribe, speaking about wisdom and intelligence. Jesus is pictured as the Son of Man in the Gospel of Luke. And if you don't believe that, just, I mean, study through one of these and you'll see that's exactly right. But when we come to the Gospel of John, Remember this is the eagle, this is Dan's tribe, it speaks about swiftness, it speaks about keen sightedness. John presents Jesus as the Son of God who has come down from heaven. And I, I I submit to you that in these four beasts we see a we see a picture, as it were, of a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ in this, just as we see four separate accounts of our Lord in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Pictured four different ways. Why don't we have just one gospel? People, some people have asked that. Why do we need four separate gospels? In fact, there have been some said, well, they contradict each other. No, they don't. They're just looking at the life and the ministry of Christ from a different perspective. And it's very the God, for about Son of God who has come down from heaven. Matthew, what? As the king. He's the king of Jews. He's the servant. Whenever you go to Mark and you get to Luke... He is the Son of Man. Now, look at verse number 8. That is their appearance. Whether my assessment is, that is correct or not, that's the way they appear. Verse 8, And the four beasts, each of them, had six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and the rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is, and is to come. So, in other words, their praise is unending. Now we come to the last two verses, and here we see the four and twenty elders worshiping. And the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne, and worship Him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory And honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Have you ever noticed there are no songs of evolution? The atheist doesn't have anything to sing about. There are no songs of evolution, there are songs of creation. Creation. And that's what we see here. Only those who know the Lord have a reason to sing. And notice it says here that their praise has to do with with the Lord being worthy and giving Him, notice three things, glory and honor and power. But I want you to notice the purpose in all of this. He says, "...for thy pleasure." In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse number 7, it talks about that it was for God's pleasure, it is for God's glory that everything has been created. Don't ever forget, that is why we're here. I, I have a sermon that, I, that I've preached several different times about the glory of God. And you can go all of the way back to the beginning of creation and find Scripture just like this, that everything was created. Why? For His pleasure, for His glory. That, that's why everything exists. It, it doesn't exist for us. As much as I enjoy nature, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. I, as much as I enjoy it, it doesn't exist for me. I can enjoy it, but its main purpose is what? To glorify God. Whenever we come to the children of Israel, the, in fact, the establishment of the nation of Israel we find very clearly that they existed for the purpose of what? Glorifying God. It was for that purpose that nation was brought into existence. Whenever the tabernacle, the house of God, was established and God gave directions as to the establishment of the tabernacle and exactly how He wanted it built and He made it very clear that this is my house, build it for my glory, then we come to the temple. Exactly the same thing. We get to the temple and God says, you know, this is for my glory. And Solomon says, in fact, that that he built it for the glory of God. That was the purpose for it. We come to the New Testament. And in the New Testament we see in Ephesians chapter number 3, unto him be glory in the church. That's the reason the church exists. We're not here just so we can fellowship with one another. We're not here for selfish reasons. We exist for the purpose of glorifying God. You say, well, how do you do that? We glorify God through obedience to His Word, with the right attitude, a labor. Of love, what we do willingly, what we do to exalt the lord jesus christ that 's why this church exists that is our that is our statement of purpose. Our purpose on this earth is to glorify God. The same thing is true in regards to our salvation. Three times in Ephesians chapter number one. As Paul is making reference to us being redeemed, he says in each t- instance that it is unto the praise of His glory. Why did God save you? Well, you said because He loved me so much He didn't want me to die and go to hell. He wanted me to go to heaven. Well, those are things God wanted for you, but that's not the primary reason God saved any of us. He saved us unto the praise of His glory. This is what we need to keep in mind every minute of every day, that our reason for being is to glorify God in everything we do. That's true here on earth, and that will be true as we see here in our study tonight throughout all of eternity. Day and night. He said they never rest, but day and night they're saying, Holy, Holy holy and giving Him glory and honor and power, recognizing the fact that all things were created for His glory and all things continue to exist for His glory. So from beginning to end and throughout eternity, it's all about God being glorified. We need to make that the main purpose in absolutely everything we do, every decision we make, everywhere we go. Keep in mind that our purpose in this is to glorify God. The purpose in the sermon, glorify God. The purpose in in your the songs you sing is to glorify God. When you give money, what's the purpose? It's to glorify God. It's not about you, it's not about me. It's all about Him glorifying Him. And it's going to be that way forever. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank You for giving us so much information about things that, that are glorious. Things that, that on one hand we can't even begin to understand. We can't not comprehend the greatness of of what John is trying to explain to us. It boggles our mind, it staggers our imagination, and we confess that we can never understand it, but we sure do appreciate it and we benefit from it just being able to to get a little glimpse into that which you're doing. Not just here on this earth, but that we can actually see and know what's taking place in heaven and to know how we will spend all of eternity. May we leave here tonight conscious of the fact that Christ could come at any moment. And for those that are not saved, I pray they will be. And for those that have been saved, Lord, help us to get serious about our witnessing to others lest they miss the very things that we glory in. For we pray in Jesus' name.